What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They Mm -hmm. can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Ironswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantk9.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and mm. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, How about great. you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And while you're still allowed to, they're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that and we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques. So take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. How are you doing? I'm quite well, actually. That's good. Surviving the COVID rampage? Yep. Getting a bit over it. It's good it's on the decline anyway. Certainly is here, yeah. Mm. They reckon they're going to hopefully open the trans-Tasman bubble in Australia to allow us to travel to New New Zealand Zealand and neighbouring islands and so forth. Mm. Hopefully that will relieve a few people's anxieties and boredoms and everything that are going on. Mm. Absolutely ridiculous how this has really shut us all down and changed our lives, but it has. Yeah, tricky. Mm. Yeah. I want to make it all about me, so (laughs) stand by. (laughs) This is the thing I'm most upset about. Okay, go ahead. Virgin going broke. Oh, man. Losing all my status credits. has upset me more than anything. Yeah, I know. That has really busted nut me too because people are saying to me, oh, you should shift to Qantas and I'm going, no, no, like Flying Virgin better. And The main thing for me is 
you know, I'm back and forth to the States and mm. Qantas fly an A380. And that's just too many people in one space. Like I like the 777 that Virgin flies. Yeah, it's no, 333 nice, yeah, all the way across. Nice, comfortable plane. Yeah. Mm. But the A380 is just, it's just too many people in one place. Yep. Anyway. It is what it is. That's my huge complaint. I've lost all my status credits. Hopefully someone buys them out and they continue, but. Well, that's the best case scenario, which is what they're saying. They still owe me money. I've got cancelled flights that we already booked for seminars. So Narelle and I have both got money in the wings with Virgin. So we're owed money. I have three return flights to America. Oh, fuck. One to the UK. Oh, shit. One to Darwin. All in credit. Yeah. Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, I hope you get it back. I doubt it. They go into a receivership that's gone and it'll be bought out by a new company. Anyway, Mm. if I'm honest, I've given up on the money. I just want, I just want lounge access with whatever airline I have to transfer to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's, that's the thing, right? Like, especially when you're traveling those distances. Remember when we went to Detroit and they had showers in the, yeah, that, I mean, that was just you need luxurious it. heaven. You need it. You do. Like we got off the plane. And I think when you fly regularly, that's why they give you those things because it, it is like, you, you know, if you go on your holiday, you can manage or whatever, right? Yeah, because you're going you're, to a nice place. But, but when, when you're, you're flying international every month or thereabouts, mm. it's uh, you need those little luxuries. Well, like when you and I went to Canada and then we were going across to Pennsylvania and then we went to Colorado Springs. I mean, it was like the movie Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Yeah. It was just ridiculous how much travel we were yeah, doing yeah. and all in one big stretch so by the time we got to detroit and had showers i thought oh man this is just heaven yeah, yeah. just to have a hot shower was just like i, yeah, I, I felt like i was a billionaire yeah welcome to the airplane yes. <laughs> welcome to the travel podcast <laughs> uh the last flight i had home did i tell you about that no so i think it was where was the last when i when i was coming home from chicago mm. so on the flight and i had the seat that I had was the exit row. Like I got a good seat. Business and class? I was, no, no. I was in the cattle. Yeah. But I was down the back exit row and I was on the right side. And the guy sitting next to me, he says, oh, mate, do you mind swapping seats with my buddy who's actually in your identical seat but on the left side of the airplane? Uh, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Like no biggie. Mm-hmm. It's all the same to me. So I go over there and I sat next to these two guys and they were hilarious, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they were like in their real early 20s. I think one was 20 and the other was 21 or something. And they were on their first big trip together and they'd been around America and they were telling all these stories. Anyway, it was a very entertaining flight. Yep. But because I'm a Platinum member, the head like air hostess comes out and like greets you, right? Like mid-flight comes and checks that everything's okay. So it's usually pretty discreet and- I guess it's it's one of those weird luxuries being a platinum member. Like, yep. like what if what am I going to say? No, this is terrible. Like, <laughs> oh, sorry, Mister Stewart, turn the plate around, right? Like, who yep. cares? I demand an upgrade. Yeah, I'm absolutely appalled. That well, you I've put always me, said put that me with the common people, because the little of, people. Well, that's right, because I am in the back anyway, and it's weird to them because most people that you know have that mm. are up the front. Yep. So she comes. They always say to me like, "Oh, how's everything?" I say, there "Isn't happened to be any seats up the front for me? Is there?" And they're always like, "Uh, no, you didn't pay for that." Yeah, I'm like, okay. Anyway, so there's a kerfuffle because she goes to the wrong guy because I'm not in my seat, Yeah, right? So it's kind of a bit of a, she's looking for me and it was a, caused a little bit of a scene. So she comes over and then this guy next to me is like, hang on, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> like, and he's like, why the fuck is the, the, lead, the cabin crew commander come to say hello to you? Are you someone special? And I was like, no, <laughs> I just fly a lot. And he, he's demanding to know how, why does she say hello to you and not to me? And I was like, oh, mate. Anyway. 
missed that. I'm not going to get that again. I'm going to have to build up again through Qantas or something else. Well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. And that's the tragic story of how the COVID-19 has affected me. They may may buy the airline, retain the service, and we may still get it if we're living in perfect world scenario. Speaking of that last story you did, I know we're – we're not even <laughs> taking on our topic yet, but it was a funny one. When I first came up to work here at Pet Resorts and Dave and I were having a meeting in a cafe over in Dural, yeah, and we were chatting away and there were these three ladies there and David walked past these ladies and he, one of them asked him something and he was chatting away and I don't know how it got into the conversation, but David pointed at me and he goes, do you ladies know who he is? And they're going, no, should, <laughs> should we? And he goes, David goes, oh, yeah. That's Glenn Cook. He's the world's most famous dog trainer. And and they are like, that's just Dave. And these ladies are like, they're going, oh my God, is he on TV? And Dave goes, yeah, having you seen him? And he's just like convinced them that I'm like a Cesar Milanish type figure and so forth. And they're, yeah. you can hear them whispering to each other and they're trying not to look at me and they're pointing and giggling to themselves. It was quite funny. Silly, but funny. I had a friend that used to do stuff like that all the time. Yeah, I remember one time I was driving him into the city. So he was going in to pick something up or something. I can't remember. But it was when I had my Mustang. So I used to have this old 67 mm. Mustang. And it, like, you only got rid of it not long ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. It used to turn a lot of heads, that thing, right? So people are already kind of paying attention to us because mm. it's so loud and we're in like the city traffic. And um, we get to where we're going and he's getting out like on the corner up there. We're in traffic waiting for you guys. I'll jump out at these lights. And he screams at me, right, for no reason, right? We're supposed to sit in the car. He screams at me like, that's it. I've had it with your bullshit. Because <laughs> he's getting out of the car. And he gets out of the car and he goes, we are finished, me and you. I am done. I am never getting in an abusive relationship with anyone like you ever again. And he slams the door and runs off into the building. And so there we are like in the CBD with now, you know, it's lunchtime, peak out, like it's people everywhere yep. looking at me like, oh, that guy abuses his boyfriend. <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> he used to do shit like that all the time. Dog training. Dog training. What's mm. going on with dog training? Today's topic I thought what we would talk about is a little bit centric about students with their coach. Mm-hmm. And we did a podcast last week, which I just finished editing. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a good topic about diminishing return, which people would have no doubt heard by now. Mm-hmm. So it got me thinking about students' relationship with their coach. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's absolutely fantastic. However, there's other times where I think it can become on the verge of being unhealthy. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I agree. I think I think a big part of the student-coach relationship is from the talent code. It's that mm. the idea of the master coach. Yes. And I think that it's super important that a coach don't try and make themselves irreplaceable. Or what you certainly sometimes see is a coach that tries to be the linchpin Mm. um, and a necessary part of the ongoing development where you should just be like a necessary and required part of ongoing development. Whereas the coach's role I think is to just be a step, right? Like you're just a stepping stone in the development of the student Mm. and it should be every coach's goal that the student outgrow the coach. That should be right. Yeah. That's my thoughts on it as well, because I think what you're doing is you're setting up a template. And it's not a template to say that the template can't grow beyond what you're setting it as. But as a coach, what you're trying to do in any of the students that you're working with is to say, okay, this is a criteria that needs to be met. 
So what we need to do is incrementally work within this criteria to get to the end of it. And then there'll be a new template with new criteria and so on and so on. So basically what you're doing is you're setting up a structure. And we often talk about this in dog training mm-hmm. literature or terms as well. When we start saying we're working on the foundation, then we're going to build floor by floor. That's an analogy that's echoed around the industry and it has been for many, many years, ever since I've been a trainer or a coach myself and, and people who've trained and coached me have been using that example as well. So I can reflect on my own experiences when I'm thinking about myself in my early career. In my early career, when I started off learning how to train dogs, which was primarily through Boyd, and this is no fault of Boyd's. It's not a, I'm not pointing at, at Boyd or any other coaches for this problem, but I identified or was identified to me that I was replicating myself as a Boyd and not as a unique person. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not Boyd's fault. I'm talking about the problem I created for myself Mm -hmm. because I was in awe of him and what we were doing at the time was leagues beyond what anybody else was showing us or what was available at that time. I wasn't questioning what I was doing. It wasn't that it wasn't encouraged to question or talk or give feedback or anything like that. It's just that a, I was young when you're young, you're very impressionable at times, but I mean, youth doesn't dictate or depict whether you're, capable or incapable of asking questions or not. It sometimes just comes down to personality traits. So I wasn't asking a lot of questions. I was just, you know, like accepting this is the way. So it wasn't until I started to sort of stray outside of the ADT system that I started to realize or was encouraged of me to to look deeper into the aspects of learning, self-development. It kind of dawned on me back then that I was actually crippling myself by not learning additional, like I was doing things parrot fashion. That's what I'm trying to get Uh to. I wasn't actually learning anything additional. I was just following the bouncing ball, basically. It's very much when people learn to play music without actually reading music. Uh Like they can sit down there and they can bash out a song, but they're not actually learning how to read it or play it or look at it and develop within the actual structure of it. So I found myself that was a big problem for for myself at the time, even though I was learning great material and even though my foundations were long and deep, I kind of thought to myself, what do I know outside of this? Mm. And I've often talked about it on this show and externally, the trouble I had for myself when Alec put me under the, uh, well, he, he put me on display and said, if you are all this and, and more, then show us, you know, mm-hmm. like teach us what you know. And I came unstuck because I was working outside in a different system that was alien to me. And then I realized I'm a fraud. So explain that because people might not understand. So you, you what you were doing with Boyd was more street, like tactical yeah, type Yeah, it was work. tactical type. And Alec Jones, who was later a mentor of yours, was an IPO Schutzen, guy. IPI. Yeah. yeah. So it was Schutzen back then. It's IPO and now it's IGP. Yeah. So Alec took me down the club. He introduced me to a bunch of people and, you know, like Alec recognized that I had talent. He was a good friend and I didn't like that he did this to me, but he put me on the spot and he made me feel uncomfortable at the time. But I'll get into that in a a little bit of time because people might be thinking, well, that's an asshole thing to do. And it kind of was, but it worked. Mm -hmm. So what Alec did was he took me to the Schutzen Club and he introduced me to a bunch of people and he said, right, so Glenn's going to teach us tracking today. And... I hadn't learned how to track <laughs> properly like what these guys were doing. So I'd learned to do man searching. Yeah. So I'd, I'd taught my dog and a lot of other people, you know, how to enter buildings, how to do search procedures, how to cue the dog into 
position and so on and so on. So that was fine. I could do this all day long. And I was quite good at that because we were drilling that almost every single time we were down at the club. We were just drilling, drilling, drilling with different dogs, different locations, different buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So that I could say, yep, hands down, I could I could teach that to anybody. Yep. I could teach it to Blind Freddy. But when it got down to learning, uh, you know, like a even a basic Schutzen 1 or IPO 1 or IGP track, I was fucked. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't know, even know how to start it. <laughs> and uh, But I didn't want to – break my status. I didn't want to let people know that I wasn't all that. Yeah. So I went down there and I just tried to wing it. And then I realized, oh, I'm a total fraud. And everybody was looking at me because even students who were not long in the, in the game knew that what I was talking was just a complete shit show. Mm-hmm. I was so humiliated, so angry and embarrassed. I got in the car and I just went home and sulked for a long period of time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Alec being Alec, Alec didn't put up with shit from anyone. He was Alec is a is a tough as nails person through and through. Yeah. So he came around, knocked on my door, and he said, "Get out of here, you big sook." And he called me a lot of other names, but you know, he said, "Get out of here and talk to me." And Alec would have grabbed me by the scruff and slapped me around the yard. He was just that type of person, but also a very caring, very gentle person as well. So you know, like he was kind of he was Superman in a Clark Kent body, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So. Alec got me out. He, he chatted to me and he goes, now, I did this to you because I care about you, not because I just wanted to show you up. And he said, you had a very shitty ego. You were portraying yourself in a very poor light. And he said, when you're going to become a great instructor or a great teacher, he said, you have to have great knowledge of your subject matter. And you also need to conduct yourself in a professional way as well. And he mm-hmm. said, you weren't doing any of that. He said, you were coming down as Mr. ADT. I know everything about everything. And he said, you don't know everything about everything. And he said, no one does. It's not your job to. And he said, but the main thing, what you need to do is go, I know this much about this much, but I'm open to learning a lot more. Yeah. And for me, Alec at that stage took on a master coach role for me as well, mm-hmm. because he wasn't just teaching me about dog training. He was teaching me about the aspect of life, you know, being a better person and being open to that. There is so much more outside of the system that I learned and it's great to develop systems. It's great. And I mean, it worked very well for me while I was inside the ADT bubble. You know, I became a very well-known person. I was very insular, but I was inside my bubble. I was very well-respected, very appreciated, and I got a lot of status within the bubble. But the problem is, is once you're outside the bubble, then you're exposed to criticism on other systems that present themselves. And if you're presenting yourself as a person who is a generalist in knowledge, then you're going to come under fire very quickly Mm. because people will say to you, well, you might be Mr. ADT, but who are you outside that? What can you do as far as Schutz and IPO type of work? So at the time, that was a very significant rug that got ripped out from underneath my feet. And I guess what the emphasis on the show, if I'm trying to develop a lesson or a point in what we're trying to do here is encourage people to understand that it's great to develop foundations and you should, and you shouldn't be too fragmented too earlier on. Mm-hmm. But what you do, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say to people is be very open-minded. We've tried to carry that continuity through the show about what we're doing is learn from the mistakes of other people who've made them. The earlier, the better for you is primarily what I'm trying to say is mm-hmm. the younger you are and the more open you can be and the more discipline you can be to learning, but also understanding that there is still more out there, but don't be overwhelmed with that mm-hmm. because 
there's another aspect of that where people be, can become overwhelmed to that concept as well, thinking to themselves, oh my God, there's so much out there and how am I going to live a long enough life to learn it all? Mm. That's another problem that does exist in itself because then people become anxious about the fact that there is so much out there and why aren't they getting access to it all immediately? Well, that's too overwhelming. Yeah. This is a heavy topic. It is a heavy topic. Yeah. Good thing we started out laughing about me, my loss of status (laughs) credits. (laughs) Listening to you then and keeping in mind what we spoke about last time and hitting that point of diminishing return. Mm. I think that's really important is to understand, you know, like how much of this is usable, right? Like, yep. uh, but I think in any coach, like you're passing on knowledge that you have, right? And you can only pass on what you have. And I think something I learned in the army, I had a really good mentor there that told me, you know, and he made up these numbers. So who knows how true they are, but he was like, you can actually only pass on 80% of what you have, right? Yep. So like you can't teach everything, everything, you know, you can't pass on. And the you know, the way knowledge progresses is you take on a bunch from someone. Mm. Imagine those numbers were right. Imagine that was it. Imagine you take in 80% of somebody else's knowledge, right? And then you need to take in 80% of somebody else's knowledge as well. And maybe a big chunk of that is the same stuff, right? But there will be parts that are not, right? And that's how we've progressed as a species, right? Mm. That's how we're actually moving forward. And that's how we pass on info and we train new people is multiple people, right? So like when you go to school, you don't have one teacher. You have a teacher that teaches you a subject Mm -hmm. and then the bell rings and you change classes and you go to another teacher that teaches you about another subject because they're specialists, right? Well, that's in that's more so in secondary school. Yeah. In primary school, you're usually with one teacher. Yeah, Mm. which is, you know, fits the model even better because in primary school, you're learning the basics. Yeah, with a generalist. Yeah. Yeah. But then when it's like, here's a topic that you really need to know, it's like, is a specialist in that topic. And mm. then even more so when you go to university or you go to like a tertiary education yep. is like, here is, here's the specialist within the specialist. Here's okay? the master coach of that, yeah. of that topic. Of that part of it. Like mm. even in trade schools, you know, like when I um, went to the trade school, I only did a year of the apprenticeship before I joined the army, but there were three different teachers and they all taught different parts of it. Because mm. when I was uh, doing stonemason stuff, there's people that teach you how to cut stone, like chisel work. And then there's people that teach you, teach you how to build it. Yep. And so you're going to end up with a trade that allows you to do both of those, but most people are specialized in one. They can do the other, but they're specialized in one. So they bring in a teacher who is going to teach you the the specifics of that, right? Yeah. Now, the guy that taught me how to lay bricks, like lay stone, he also knows how to carve it, but he wasn't as good as the other guy, yep. right? And the other guy that taught me to carve it, he also knows how to lay it, but not as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the role of specialists. And and I think that in general, we are specialists in our industry, whether we like to agree it or not, because you develop a niche in what you're good at. Yes. And, and you know, what you're interested in. Yeah. So, you, so, I mean, hopefully those two things coincide, yes. right? You know, that's an interesting topic in its own. That's one of the reasons I left the army. And the job that I used to do was a very specialist role. I hated it, but I was very good at it. And I didn't enjoy doing it at all. I Mm. found it really super stressful. And I think that was one of the reasons I was good at it was I had to work really hard at it all the time. And not enjoying what you're good at is a disaster, which is why in dogs, the type of clients I like, you know, we're a referral-based industry. Mm. And so you end up doing what you like because you do more of it, you get good results, and then you get more referrals for the same. Right. I think that no matter what level of dog training you're at, if you're just starting out working dogs in your local neighborhood or if you're teaching to thousands of people, mm. 
it's a referral based thing. It is hundred percent. Yep. And so it's a uh, trust based thing as well. Yeah. That's totally. why it's a referral based thing. Yeah. So even like I would consider myself in dog training a fairly generalist, right? Like I sort of am across most of it, but I still am specialized in the the one aspect that I really teach that m- the most because that's what people come to me for. Yep. Right. And I have had success doing it. People like it. They talk about it. They tell other people, those people want the same thing and they come in it. So even as a generalist, you end up fairly specialized, Mm. but well, there's a bleed over effect, right? Yeah. Especially in dog training because I mean, you're dealing with multifacets. Yeah. But one thing I was thinking about when you're talking then is I think that the really, the good people who are the most successful and certainly in dogs and, and I think in other industries as well are mm. people who have multiple coaches yep. and in a way to take away from that coach, what their specialization is. Right. So here's one example. I teach Nipopo, right. And I'd go, it's negative reinforcement followed by positive reinforcement. Right. And I can talk on that for six weeks if you let me, mm. but just that extra po adding positive reinforcement we can break that into a hundred different categories, right? Oh, it just explodes across different dimensions. Yeah. And Mm. so here's a good example. People say to me like, oh, you know, it's interesting that me and Jay get along so well because he's really play and relationship based and you're not. And I'm like, well, actually I am, but I've chosen to teach another thing. Yep. That's the part of the overall picture Mm. that he has chosen to teach. There's many hats. We wear we yeah. wear different hats. And he he really does almost, you know, close to as close as can get similar dog training to me. Mm. But what he's decided to teach and he's very, very good at teaching is the play relationship based stuff, right? Yep. And he's mentor and that was Ivan. And so he's teaches a very Ivan centric type thing mm-hmm. with his own flair on it. And mine is more like really getting deep and understanding dog drives and manipulating that. But I do all the play stuff. I just, that's not the show that I put on. You pinged a chord that I'm trying to actually get to with this discussion is his own flair. Yeah. And that's, I guess this is a an emphatic point that I really wanted to push on this topic was you aren't a cookie cutter trainer. Jay is not a cookie cutter trainer. I was, but I mean, I think we all learn at the start to become a little bit of cookie cutter, but the importance is, is we develop flair. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing as, you know, being an exceptional coach and being recognized in your own steed is that you learn to put your own flair on it. You've educated yourself. You've learned a great system, but then learned outside the system as well. Yeah. You know, like learn to question and learn to look deeper into it and learn to put the addition of bolt-ons on the side of it to say it's a great foundation, you know, like what I've learned from my master coach or, you know, several of them, this is a great system. Like it works very well. But now what I've learned in my own study and looking further and deeper into it, I've learned the addition of I can actually successfully bolt things onto it and it will still look attractive and still work very well. Yeah. Well, and that's the accumulation of knowledge, right? Right. Like I've got from this person – what I was able to get Mm. and I've got from another person, you know, a similar amount of content. How can I fuse those two things together? Mm. Right. And let them work together. And, and maybe they would have come up with that themselves had they met and they work together. Exactly. So, but you, you're then the conduit in between. And as life progresses, it's your job then to join those two systems or techniques or whatever and move it forward and take the best of. Yeah, Mm. exactly. 
And, you know, like, not that I want to take any credit for who she is, but, and Jazz learned Nipopo directly from Bart as well. But, she, like, me and Jazz have spent a lot of time training together. Mm. And she's also spent a lot of time with Jay understanding his stuff. And, like I say, I've never seen Jay do anything there. I would say, oh, I don't like that. That's, I'm not into that. I don't do it that way. But he just focuses on another aspect of teaching. She's learned the stuff that I have to teach yep. and what he has to teach and now has a new product to teach, right? So she's not Jay and she's not me. She's- uh, She's Jazz. She's Jazz. And yeah. her thing is Nipopo, but with way more play focus on it, yep. right? Whereas like the way that we would actually train a dog is- all three of us is probably pretty similar, mm. right? But when we have the opportunity to teach, we're like, okay, this is what I'm into. This yep. is what I think is important. Yep. And this is the part I've chosen to teach. And like I say, when I say, you know, and then you apply the extra po, well, yep. <laughs> like that's a whole, there's weeks and weeks and weeks in that reward delivery and placement reward type, like how to do that. You know, there's so much you could go into on that mm. and everything doesn't have to be at conflict with it because it's a part of it. That's right. right. It's part of the journey. Yeah. Mm. So I think that that can be a real trap. And I think that it's interesting you say like that's what happened to you when you're starting out because I think that can be a trap that happens when you have a really good coach to start with, yes. right? Because if you really quickly outgrow someone, so take this for example, right? When Jane started her tattoo apprenticeship, her first tattoo that she ever did was better than the guy oh. that, that worked in the shop. Yeah. And he acknowledged that. Like he was a pretty old school kind of guy. And he was like, oh, well, I don't have a lot to teach her. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it became really clear. Like she had to find like someone else. Now he taught her a lot. Right. Oh, this is such a good point. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. This is a very good point. So he taught her a lot. Like mm. she literally knew nothing. Yeah. And then did quite a nice tattoo. In fact, the person she did her first ever tattoo on is a really good friend of mine, a guy, Eli, that I went to school with. And there's one tiny smidgen of it where she didn't join two lines correctly. And he will not let her fix it. Mm. Right. Like she's wanted to fix it because she's done heaps more tattoos on him. And there's this one tiny smidgen where the lines just don't join as well as she would like to be able to now. And he's like, no, no way. You did that. That's your, like, this is your first ever tattoo. I'm not fucking changing it. Like, this is evidence of your progression. We're yep. not going back and changing that, which mm. I think is pretty cool. Right? Yeah, it is. But anyway, like I say, this guy taught her a lot, but very quickly she was better than him. Yep. And so it was very obvious at that point, okay, it's time to learn from someone new. Mm. But, and so you go to the next person, the next coach who will teach you more and you go to the next coach after that, blah, blah, blah. And you're in the habit then of taking everything that you can from someone and going to the next. And I think that's very common that happens. Mm. But if you find yourself under the master right away, right, it can be really hard to make the decision to come out of that because if your coach is known as the best, right, there's so much to learn and you spend so much time doing it it could be really difficult to look outside when you're like, hey, I've got the best, right? Well, you feel like, that's where you do feel so insular. Yeah. And that was the, as you're telling that story, I'm thinking again, you know, my old days with ADT because what we were doing then was so far, well, so more progressive than what anybody else was doing. I mean, I'm talking- In that years, field. In that field. Yeah. Yeah, in that field. That's right. It wasn't anything to do with agility. There were already master coaches out there, which I hadn't branched off into. I mean, there's so many th aspects of, you know, like fly ball and- just dozens and dozens of other disciplines of training that I'd never considered because it didn't interest me. But the field that it did interest me 
we were leagues above everybody else. What Boyd was bringing back to us and what he was supplying to us at that point in time. I mean, we've moved on since then, as you and I were talking in the kitchen. You know, there is so much more information. The world has just exploded. When the internet really became an addition to value and education, that really just crushed borders. You know, before it was a plane flight, like you actually had to get on a plane or wait forever to get a a VHS tape. And even by the time we got it, there was already better material coming out that we didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. Now it's a snap of a fingers and you've got access to people everywhere. But we all know this. Yeah. The reality is getting back again to what you were talking about, when you are in that bubble, you do feel so protected, Mm -hmm. you know, like you feel, and you're part of a team, you're part of a family situation. And that's also difficult to move out of as well. You know, like everything for you is so comfortable that you become, I guess, like the song Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. Mm -hmm. That is a problem. It's not a good thing in growth because you've grown so far, but then you've stopped growing and then you, you become more a zealot than anything else because you're a company man basically yeah. pushing the company line and the, and using the company tags and you're even using same speak all the time not that there's anything wrong with that when you're producing a job and you're doing good work and clients are happy and everything like that the problem is when you step outside that for any reason like let's say the company goes broke or you lose your job or you move away or anything like that is you're suddenly unplugged from the matrix. Yeah. You're not as involved in that. You're instead of a whole, you're a singular. Well, the problem is when it doesn't work. That's the that's, big That's, that's the, the problem. Big that's issue. where I'm getting to. Yeah. yeah. The big issue is like, you know, this is the system. This is what we do. This is yep. step one, step two, step three. And it works on 90% of dogs. And when you get one of those 10 percenters, then you're yep. like, oh, like now there's a, there's a problem here. Mm. And, you know, that's, I think, what's important in any in identifying a coach or being one yep. is acknowledging that there is more going on than what you have seen and what is out there. And, you know, like something I really I want to point out and say, you know, get on the record is that's something that Bart has always instilled in me is all the time is there's heaps going on, man. Like look mm. out everywhere. And it's the role of the coach to to allow that, right? Allow growth and not try and make yourself indispensable and not create little clones because that's not possible. Mm. And he even talks about it. It's what would happen when I, uh, Bill even brought it up when I was talking about Nepopo on his show is that like all the people who have learned it from Bart, they teach their own version. Everybody has their own version. He has his version. Michael has her version and there's everybody has their own flair on it. Now mm. the underlying principles have to be the same. But those principles are behavioral science, right? So it's not, it's not something It's borrowed from other people. It always has been. That's right. It's a conglomeration of uh, like, so. It's cherry picking what you need to use. Yeah. Mm. And so when we talk about, like I talk about, you know, just then how I have a way of doing things and Jay has a way of doing things and people who have spent time with us both will put those two things together and Mm. teach another way. Well, you know, when you do any dog trainers course anywhere, we're going to talk about Pavlov and we're going to talk about Skinner. They never met, right? (laughs) Right. But we all use their their stuff in connection, yep. right? It's very difficult to talk about classical conditioning without also including operant conditioning and its its effects along the way and vice versa, mm. right? Now, Skinner and Pavlov aren't old buddies that like we had old to- Old drinking mates. Yeah. yeah. Although I could imagine they'd get along. <laughs> they'd have, well, they'd have a very, they'd have a lot to talk about. It'd be a very deep conversation. Yeah. Mm. But it would be an interesting conversation, but they never had, they never got to have it. And yep. what happens is now we have people who can learn their stuff and put it together and we can have that conversation on their behalf, mm. right? We can put it together. And that's what's important to understand in dog training is like there's, 
everybody is the consequence of their experiences. And the more experiences you have, the more depth there can be to your understanding of everything, Mm -hmm. right? And looking at other people's systems and looking critically with an eye to understand it, I think is very important, right? Not an eye to diminish it, but an eye to understand it. And then you might understand it completely and go, ugh, I don't like that at all, right? But you can't really do that until you do understand it completely. But Mm -hmm. once you do, then you can go, all right, I got it, right? Like I understand this and I know what parts of it I'm going to use or I know that I'm not going to use any of it. But I think, yeah, like my point on that was that's the problem is when you have – on day one, we do this. And on day 45, we have this dog who is trained in this, you know, and that can work. And, and anybody that's doing that is doing it because they've had success doing it. But what you probably don't hear about is like the dogs that didn't fit that model. And that's the point where you've got to be going out to go, all right, my technique, my rule book, my playbook is not going to fit this. I need to adapt. Mm. Right. And then you look at, you know, it was, it was something I was talking about with Jerry Bradshaw was recently, like, uh, and, and also Tobias Gustafson, when we had him on talking about how he doesn't wash out many dogs because they got to adapt, yep. right? And what worked on this dog, it isn't working on this one. So now I've got to change the way that I train yep. in order to get this dog through because, you know, sure we could wash dogs out, but then like he might be a great working dog that just learns a little bit differently. You're sinking him in a system rather than yeah. looking outside. Yeah. It's not that he's not suitable. He's just not yep. suitable for that method of training. Exactly. Right. Which is that the rigidity is, is what gets you. Good point. Very good point. Mm. Yeah. On top of this, I'm slightly diversifying a little bit, but I did want to add a caveat on here. And I made, I think I made it clear when I first started, I don't want Boyd to listen to this and think and feel insulted that I'm attacking what he did because it's nothing to do with what Boyd did. I owe a lot to Boyd for kickstarting me in the career. I'm highlighting that it was a problem within myself and it was identifying that it was a problem within myself. Alec was probably the one who helped me identify that. Mm-hmm. He pushed me to the point of being uncomfortable. But, you know, we talk about pressure a lot on the mm-hmm. on the show, the the growth aspect of pressure. You need pressure to evolve, mm-hmm. but only a certain amount. Like too much is damaging. Enough will develop the capacity in yourself to understand I can't sit in this place any longer. So I also owe a huge debt to Alec as well for pushing me outside my comfort zone and then making me realize, well, if I can do it in this area, maybe I can do it in other areas as well. Yeah. And it's primarily the aspect we apply to shaping and chaining. You know, we do the same sort of things. We, as you said before, it's about adaptation. We look at a system and say, okay, well, this system isn't working. Let's adapt outside the system slightly. So we'll go to the left a little bit and see what the dog is capable or what the student is capable in this area. We have done this so many times, even when I've done student assessments, part of your cert for in workplace training and assessing is not just being rigid in your method of assessing a student. It's also the capacity of understanding everybody learns differently and saying to some, like you you might get nine students out of 10 students that all learn the same way. They all picked it up, but Mm -hmm. you'll have one student in that group. And this is often the case, every student course that I've ever done, it's always been the case that there'll be one or two students that have a different uptake in knowledge that you'll need to say to them, okay, consider this. And all of a sudden they're flying. Mm. As soon as you change the criteria to something that triggers understanding in them, they go, oh, it's this. They might not be able to write it, but they can explain it. Yeah. So they actually do know it. And this is an amazing thing. I love it when I have a student that says to me, I'm I'm stupid, I don't know. And I said, yeah, you do. It's in your brain. It's in all our brains. It's just extracting it in your own way. And what we do is we need to tease it out a little differently. 
it's a fascinating progress watching people struggle with something again using the the analogy of pressure but watching that pressure push them sometimes emotions come out you know you'll get a little bit of anxiety you might get a, a bit of physical emotion coming out of it but nonetheless we just explain to them it's okay let this happen it's part of the growth process just let it evolve it's it's okay don't be ashamed of what's going on here and for me to watch that journey and other students grow and watch them push themselves outside that. And all of a sudden they get a small glimmer of light and you can see the creativity coming out of them. And I love that. I love seeing that evolution in people rather than just forever be doomed to be a person that just repeats what they've done. Like they again, become a cookie cutter. They've become a person that has analytically looked at something and thought, hang on, I do know this. But then also the beauty of it, of getting onto a point of, of saying, not only do I know it, but I can add something to it as well. Yeah. You know, using your, your words before that you said is using my own flair. Mm-hmm. I, I love seeing that. I love seeing the evolution of a system because I mean, I can watch videos online and I often do. I, I might not comment on some of the videos I watch, but I watch a lot of other people's work and I can already tell who they've learned under within 30 yeah. seconds of watching it <laughs> Yeah. because they're not using their own flair. They're just using what they've watched other people do. And I've gone, oh, that's this person, that's that person, that's this person. But they're still in their very early phase of doing things as well. I guess uh, if I'm trying to look for a point to make is the point I'm trying to make is, yes, develop the foundation, but then don't be worried or stressed about having a look outside of that. You're not disrespecting your coach. In fact, go back to your coach and ask them questions about it. Like if you if you do have some additional thought, I think it's great dialogue for you and your coach to have at times where, like you do with Bart and I have with many of the people that I've learned under, is to go back to them and, and say, I was thinking about this the other day. If I was to apply this in my training platform, how do you think this might work? And if your coach is anyone of substance, they'll come back and think, Hmm, good question. Mm. They might even not know the answer to it at the time, or it might be wonderful dialogue that the two of you are going to have in developing a new program and thinking, yeah, this is cool. Let's play with this. Let's experiment with it. Again, one point that I really did enjoy about my old days at ADT, and I think for me, they were some of the heydays of my training, some of the times where I felt really alive about training and I loved it is because there was groups of us that would sit around at the end of the night. Like we'd finish training at about, nine or 10 o'clock at night, we'd be sitting around having a dialogue about what we did. And then somebody would say, oh yeah, but you wouldn't be able to do this. And everyone thought, well, maybe you would. So we'd pull the dogs out again. And you know, that would be a couple of hours of actually training. Then we put the dogs away. Then we'd be sitting around, you know, like it's starting to get to 12 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and somebody would say, okay, well, you've done this. What about if we threw this in? And everyone would go, hmm, let's get the dogs out. So we pull the dogs out again. And we'd do another session. And there were nights where we'd be sitting there till two o'clock in the morning just debating training topics. Yeah. And I thought to myself, how fucking good is this? Like I'm actually witnessing change occurring. You know, and I mean I'd started to develop along a little bit of time. I'd start to work with Alec and the Schutzen Club, but I could see it for myself then. I could see that there was a point to questioning what you're doing sometimes, not in a disrespectful way. Like I've maintained that status the the entire conversation, but in a way that you're developing growth and you can see these platforms really starting to roll out and thinking there is a lot more to this than what I actually understand right now, Mm. you know, and bearing witness to it was actually wonderful. Yeah. 
That's the interesting thing. I like, I maybe need better words because these two are too close together, but I talk about the difference between like a method and a technique. Mm -hmm. Maybe those two words are too close together. Maybe I need to think about that some more, but I try to stay away from any like method specific instruction Yep. and anything that says, you know, you must. Yeah. Do it like this. Whereas yep. what I like, and that's what, that's why the Nipopo stuff has resonated with me is it's an underlying set of principles, mm. right? Like, and that's a technique, right? And it just means like how you actually, the method, that's up to you, right? Like how you want to teach a dog to heal that the method, that's yep. up to you. Now, yes. whether you want to lure that in a position or you want to use marker boards or you, you know, there's a million ways to teach a dog to heal, right? Mm. Ne none of those matter there is underlying set of principles that are going to result in a dog healing correctly. Mm. Right. And they are what is important and how you apply it that, you know, that's up to the you and the dog and your circumstance and all kinds of stuff. Mm. And I think that that rigidity of, of method is, is a little bit scary. It is really um, right. Yeah. Because some people can't fit it. So therefore it's impossible. Right. Mm. And that's not the case. You know, I think that sometimes you get people who, you know, say we're, we're play based and Everything has to be play. Like that's the only way you can train. And then you get someone who's less powerful than their dog or the dog is, you know, can't distinguish between the game and reality or, you know, there could be many reasons why you wouldn't ever play with a dog. Yep. Right. And it's like, okay, well now I can't train that dog. It's like, no, there's plenty of things you can do. Right. You, you just got to use a different technique. The method has to change. Sorry. This is the problem of it, right? The wordplay. Yep. The method has to change. The technique will, the, is the same. The underlying set of principles is you have to show the dog that there's value in doing that behavior. Mm. You have to somehow make that behavior happen and then show him that there's value in doing it again, right? You have to give reinforcement, yep. right? And how we're going to do that can vary depending on the dog, depending on the handler. And that's one of the issues as well is like, say I've got dog X and he's with handler Y. I might look at them and go, all right, this is what's going to work for you. And then we go, okay, so dog X, it's play. Okay. So we're going to teach him with play. And then we bring in handler Z with still with dog X. We go, okay, no, no, no. <laughs> now we're just going food. Yeah. Right? Because you're incapable of playing with that dog. And you know, maybe we need to teach you play separately because the dog already knows. Mm. And then we can bring those two things together. Or maybe you two are just a bad combination. You know, there, there's many reasons why that would there happen. Is. Yeah. There, you're right. You're on track. Yeah. And mm. I think that, having like a really no this is how it goes this is it like and it just it can work but it means that there will be times it doesn't work there has to be times it doesn't work when you're overly prescriptive with a method there has to be a time where that will fail right and i think that it's at that point if you're like oh well can't be done that's not fair on the handler and it's not fair on the dog but that happens more than we know a lot yeah, yeah a lot it happens yeah. right and then and you know, it happens in the bite work. We've spoken plenty of times. Like I'll say to someone like, Hey, this dog, he's not, he's not going to be what you want. We can get him biting. There's things I can do. Mm. And I wouldn't normally do with a, a dog that, you know, w was going to work the streets or whatever. Yep. We can get him biting and he can play a fun little game, but it's not, you need to know this is not, you know, uh, the same finished product that you just saw that guy over there with. Mm. Right. That kind of thing. Um, and I think it, it, <laughs> That's where the rigidity of a of a, a method falls over is when it, it doesn't doesn't work and we say, Oh, I give up, right? Or you tell people it can't be done, mm -hmm. right? Because because it can't be done within your method doesn't mean it can't be done. That's a powerful observation because I think instilling limitations is dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do have to be realistic at times. I mean, when you're looking at something and you can see that 
let's use bite work, for example. There have been plenty of dogs that have come to me for the serious application of working streets. And people have presented a dog to me before. And as you've pointed out, I've said to people, yeah, you can play with this dog, but if you bet your life on it, would you feel safe? And people have looked at me and they've said, so that's it, is it? And I said, well, that's all I can give you. Doesn't mean that somebody else might not be able to tweak something out of the dog. And I would certainly try. Let's say, for example, I was diagnosed with a terminal disease and I went to one doctor and my one doctor said to me, well, that's it. You're going to die. I wouldn't like to just sit on that one doctor's <laughs> advice. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be shopping around at that point in time and, and I'd be looking to somebody to say to me, there's a chance. And I guess that's the migration or probably the direction that I needed to change myself when I was younger is because I was saying to people, that's it. If Glenn Cook can't train your dog, nobody can train your dog. And that's the arrogance I developed. And that was the danger that I was presenting people with. Thanks, Alex. And again, it's not Boyd's fault. It was my fault Mm -hmm. because it was a an air of arrogance that I developed because I thought Boyd's the king and I'm the prince, you know, and that's basically the way it works. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did learn was compassion and empathy and education. And I actually grew up a little bit. I think that when you're young and, and I was young, I was a very, very early twenties back then when you're young. And as Sapolsky points out, your brain development still hasn't developed to a point of being wise yet. Mm-hmm. I think they always say that wisdom comes in your older years. And for me, it certainly did. Things like proper empathy, thinking about things like halting before words come out of my mouth, like sometimes now, which is beneficial, but more often than not, I'll actually think about things before I just open my mouth. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, that wasn't the case. When I was younger, I would just say things for the sake of saying things. doesn't mean I don't talk shit now. I do. But the reality is I'm less likely to than what I was when I was younger. But I feel that my understanding of even though I can't do it, there are other people out there who can. So I encourage people to get a second opinion. I'll Mm. say, all right, well, if you've got your heart set on this, go speak to such and such, see what they think. You know, like if, if you've gone to see half a dozen people and half a dozen people are saying, there's no way it can be done. I said, well, then you've given it every opportunity that you could. But as the analogy I used before about going to that doctor, I'd still want to have a look around and say to myself, okay, well, I've I've exhausted almost every option. doesn't mean that there isn't something out there if you're really heart set on it. But, you know, like there's other people have said to me before, so this means I have to get rid of the dog. And I've said, well, it doesn't mean you have to get rid of the dog. You can keep the dog as a pet, okay, and you can still learn from this dog. It still can be a foundation of learning that you can have. But if you've got your heart set on, let's say, being a PSA 3 dog or an IGP 3 dog, this dog ain't going to get you there. Yeah. That's the stark reality of it sometimes. But you can still learn so much about that dog. Yeah. And if you're ever interested in becoming more than just a handler into the realms of becoming a trainer – you're going to learn a lot of lessons about that. I've learned more about the mistakes I've made in training than I have all the applications of the right way to do things in training. Yeah. Something you said then is interesting. You know, like saying this isn't going to be a PSA three dog. I think that's something that we kind of look at a little bit when people coming in with a new dog, new handler is we might, you know, not that we have any PSA three dogs in Australia, but as a, you know, just as an example, but Things that you might do to a dog that you know is only going to be suitable for the lower levels, 
would be a problem for you if that dog would go to the higher levels, mm-hmm. right? So there's certain things that uh, you might look at and go, okay, you and this dog, like the PDC or the, the level one is your pinnacle. So we don't need to develop some neutrality, right? Yep. Because so we'll make your dog really in the bite work, like really a hundred percent because we need all the commitment that the dog has. The mm. dog doesn't have enough to be dividing it down in between do this behavior to get the bite, right? We've got to go, okay, hundred percent balls to the wall because that's all that we're going to be able to do. That would, with another dog, create an unlivable monster. And mm. then that dog would be totally incapable of or incapable of the higher level stuff because mm. now there's no neutrality. And I think that's the that's what's really good coaching is when you can look at it and say, hey, You're future-proofing. This is what we're going to do for you, mm. right? And now you and this dog, this is the path you're on. And now you've got another dog. Okay, now you're on a totally different path. Mm. And that's something I've had with people as well. Like when people say, you know, they've got, like they've had multiple dogs and they do one thing one way and then they get the next dog and I say, no, 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 no. Do it this way. <laughs> They're like, no, but you said this way. So mm. yeah, that was when you were at a particular skill level with a particular dog. Yeah. You're now at a much higher skill level because you've had years of experience, right? On practicing on that other dog. Mm. And now he's a different dog altogether. So now it's a whole, that opens up a whole nother realm to you. And I think that's good coaching. And, and I've had that done to me, you know, heaps where people go, no, that's all you're ready for, right? Like, and this is what you have to digest and then you can move on to the next bit. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's right. I mean, that that's shaping. Yeah, that's, that's right. proper shaping. And I think overwhelming with information can be much to the detriment of the learner, mm. right? Like sometimes I think as instructors, and we all are, every dog trainer is an instructor because you you have the, the at the minimum, the dog is the student, but more yep. often than not, you have the handler as well, right? The ultimate handler, the client. Overwhelming with information can be really detrimental, whereas mm. giving like one tiny piece of information and mastering that before you give another can be really powerful thing. Sage advice. That's something I'm experiencing now, like, you know, outside of dogs, but reflecting it onto dogs. You know, mm. I've for a long time been obsessed with markers. You know how much content we have? I was looking through our Patreon the other day. Do you know how much fucking content we have on markers? Heaps. Right? And there's about to be more. I'm about to put out another but one. There's right? a, but the good thing about it is there's an evolution in it because you're thinking deeper about it. Like, yeah. you're, you're really starting to tear the fabric of markers apart. But that's it. So, like... There's, for me, I decided like the why- Why is it so? Well, why have I focused so heavily on that? And it's a foundation, right? It's mm. like develop a strong foundation in this and then we can use it elsewhere. Absolutely. And we're just messy if we're doing anything else. Mm. My whole life I've worked out, right? Like forever. The old like standard training program, like three sets of 10 supersets. So six exercises and then you change programs six weeks later. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever done anything with really good technique, right? I'm not a personal trainer. I'm just a person that trains. And so I have had plenty of personal trainers and I've had some fucking good ones and they give you good instruction, but there's no way I can like just as a lay person master, you know, what's that 30 to 40 exercises a year if you're changing programs every six weeks, of Mm. course, there'll be some double up, right? But imagine that, like how, how can you possibly get that good at bench pressing curling, you know, there's like a hundred different types of bicep curl, right? Like how can you get that good at those to really understand? You can't, you just do them and you get a pretty good effect, yep. right? Well, what I've gotten into lately is that that program I was doing, like I'm literally only doing two exercises. I'm doing kettlebell swings and Turkish get-ups. That's it. And a few months into it, I'm starting to really understand the fucking kettlebell swing and mm-hmm. the Turkish get-up. I'm getting to the point where I could really teach someone that, but more importantly, I can critique it myself. 
right? So I apply this to dogs and I think like we overwhelm people with information and it, that can be fine. Like the average client, it can be fine because they got enough. Right. And it's so like, if it's my, my analogy is like a PT, right? You just want to get a bit fitter. Here's a bunch of exercises. If your form's not perfect, it's going to be okay. You'll be all right. Don't hurt yourself. Don't go overload. Right. You'll be all right. And we do that with dog train with our pet clients all the time. We go to their house and we say, look, here's all the info that you need little bit, little bit, you'll be fine. We overwhelm them a little bit. They only take in 20% of what we say, but it's that 20% is good enough to get them over the line. Mm. But for people that are learning to be a, you know, like to pass this stuff on, I love the idea of like, here, here is what seems like a little bit of information, mm. right? But actually there's a fucking million layers to this thing. And we can build that up and build that up. Like take classical conditioning for an example. Now, when you're in someone's pet dog home and you're you're explaining to them how the markers are going to work. I can explain classical conditioning at 30 seconds flat. Yep. Right. But I reckon I could teach for two days on that. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon if you let me, I can unpack that and mm. explain all the details on that and its effects on aggression and trigger stacking and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And I can build that. I could talk for days about that shit. Mm. Right. But I have to choose like what's relevant at the time. That's it. Right. Relevancy. How much is relevant to that person at the time? And I think, but as a learner, especially if we're intending to be you know, professionals in the industry, I like focusing on one topic really heavily, a foundation mm. skill topic and really fucking develop that and unpack it and, and, and understand it. And then again, to, to credit Bart even further is like, that's one of the things he's always said to me is like, go find other, like, don't be afraid of other people, like mm. f- learn from other people and develop this and understand something that maybe I didn't think was important, but they do. And something I also encourage people to do is to go to and learn from people who are in conflict with what I say. And I've done that with everybody that I've ever learned from. I've tried to seek out their opposite because I talk about that in fucking dog training. Tell the people, you can teach a dog to bite something. He's got to learn to let go of it. Yep. Right? You can teach him to see, you got to teach him to stand. You can teach a send away, you got to teach a recall, right? All those sorts of things. Well, if I'm going to learn, about pressure and I'm going to learn it from someone who's like, you know, the best at doing it. I want to hear all the reasons. I want to hear the counter argument. Yep. The opposition reflex. Yeah. I want mm. to hear why, why mm. shouldn't I do that? And I want to then develop my own system of congruency of that. And mm. I like, I encourage people to do the same. And that's where this is my long roundabout way of coming around to it. I think that's where I think I would walk away from a coach if they said to me, no, no, don't look at that, mm. right? Now, we might have a good discussion about it and laugh about the nonsense on the other side. We might say, oh, go to it. It'll be funny. Like, you'll, you'll, see, <laughs> you'll see this disaster unfold, yep. right? And I might sort of poke fun at something, but I'm never – if you say to someone, don't look behind that curtain, then it's like, hang on, I have to now. Right, because if I look behind that curtain, I find out you're just a small bald man pulling strings and fucking working a mirror. Yeah. Is that what you're worried about? Right, because that's that's my take on that. Whenever you have someone, a mentor, coach, or whatever that says, "Don't look over there," they are wrong. Then I'm like, hmm. Now I have to, <laughs> right? Because you your your motivation has to be that. I, they're going to steal me away. They're going to, what, what are they going to do? Like corrupt the knowledge that you gave? If, if they really are wrong, it'll be confirmed when I know what you know, right? It'll so how be confirmed would you, that they're wrong. In that situation, how would you feel if they highlighted it to you? Like they said, this person is wrong. You'd be wasting your time, but go look if you want to. Yeah, I think hmm, that would be an interesting one. Oh, like that, that would be still okay. So long as, Maybe they're framing themselves to start with. Mm. And you could be that like, 
if they said it as simply as that, I don't know that anyone would. I, I think that if they were like, you know, that is probably not the best use of your time, money, energy, effort. Mm-hmm. That would be one way to frame it. As long as they were still okay with it, I think that would be all right. Yep. Right. It's when they say don't. Yeah. Right? <laughs> don't. No, don't don't do that. Mm. They're wrong. And you see that don't is often a trigger for investigation. Yeah, but you see that like you don't see a lot of that in our neck of the woods mm. in dog training, right? But I think in some areas, in some communities, they are really strict on that. Like, don't look over there. Oh yeah. Because Oh yeah, there are zealot groups out there who this is the the dangerous point is they do not want you to develop outside their system. Yeah. And they're very proud of that as well. They literally for people who understand and know Star Trek, the species, the Borg, they just want to assimilate you into their collective and they do not want you to question. You're a worker bee and you bow to the queen and that's mm. it. That is fundamentally the danger of some of these societal sort of groups. Yeah. And well, that's especially in anti-e-collar type mm. groups, right? They're the ones that will tell you, they tell their people like you can never – you can never look at that. Like, don't go there. Yeah. Because it doesn't you, fit You lose metric. all privilege of belonging. Yeah. And so what we say is 100% true, those people are the devil and they wreck dogs. Yep. But you only had, you only need one example of that not being the case for you to then go, oh, hang on, they've lied to me mm. about that thing. How many other lies are there? And so- And you develop your own bias. Yeah, exactly. Or you develop the group bias. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where- I, as soon as somebody's like, don't do that, that's where I'm like, hang on, now I have to. Mm. <laughs> like, now I have to. And you see, like, it's cultish. Like, with, there's loads of that in dog training, that there's the cults on, like, this is the only way it can be done and any other way is wrong. Yep. You go, well, hey, here, it's, here it is. It's being done another way. No, that's not right. Mm. Right? Like, that's incorrect. And that's something I try really hard to acknowledge is, you know, say the force-free community, right? And And – we're not anti-force free, not by a long shot. And we utilize their technique. A heap. Mm. I love a lot of the force free stuff because- It's very important. When you talk to people who have just gone like, oh, I just don't want to use any of the other quadrants. Like mm. I just want to use positive reinforcement, maybe some negative punishment. Like, and that's just a choice that I've made. And that's a challenge I've set for myself. Yep. I'm like, holy fuck, you're someone I need to learn from. Yeah. Because you've, you've tied one of your hands behind your back and you're still getting success. Mm. So- I need to understand. I need to learn from you. I need yeah. to get that. And they always say things. They might say things that are like, you know, not true or from their opinion, incorrect. But I'm like, oh, well, we can let that one fly because you're giving me all these bombs over here. Mm. You're dropping all these knowledge bombs. But also like, again, to talk about some of the ways that I coach, if you see in a lot of the Patreon content stuff, I'll say like, if you are using only for, if you're using force free, this is the path you need to take. And if you're prepared to use pressure, this is the path that you can take. Yeah. You would have seen some of that. And yeah. like, I think that's important as well because like you can do, it's your, it's your dog, you do what the fuck you want. Right. Yeah. And like, I totally acknowledge, I think we're very guilty, not you and me, but some people in the, like who would call themselves balanced trainers mm. say like, Oh, those positive only people full of shit. And it's like, no, actually a lot of what they say is very accurate. The, yep. the sane ones amongst them is very, very accurate. We Absolutely. have our crazies. They have their crazies. And, and they've got results just to That's show. Right. Yeah. And even in behavior modification, there are people who, oh, you can't change that using nothing positive. You can. Mm. You, you can. It might take a fuck a long time, but you can. And maybe if you're prepared to use pressure and then you're prepared to use their technique as well, you could double your success. Right? Well, you and I have maintained on this show, and if people have listened to snippets of the past, we've said words to the effect of, use it until it doesn't work. Yeah. And then that's where you need to critically think outside that. Yeah. 
I think in those kind of things, timeline is the biggest consideration. Absolutely, like it's it, that's the big mm. one. Like if yep. you if you're happy, if there is no end result timeline, if the journey is what you're going to go on, fuck do it however you want. Yeah, right? timeline and and being expansive on the timeline as well. Like yeah. not only horizontally but diagonally as well. Yeah, I think that's a you know that's Lima in that regard where sometimes like least invasive, minimally aversive can involve a fucking lot of pressure. Absolutely. Because the timeline of the alternate yeah. is more pressure over time. The, yeah. cu- the accumulative effect of pressure. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's probably another topic. Yeah. <laughs> it really is a deep rabbit hole. And, uh, I mean, it's a great thing because as much as we can encourage each other to critically think outside our basic platforms, that's where, you, that's where real learning starts to evolve. That's where the real – pattern starts to take shape. And I guess for me, talking on personal experience, on my personal growth, because I actually, I don't know what other people are thinking. I'm not a mind reader, nor is anybody that I've ever met, but utilizing my own mind. And then as I've sat with people and had conversations with them, and they've been able to show me, you know, expansive techniques that they're using, such as Bart, you know, I mean, Bart did rock my world when I went to see him, because it's not that he, he taught me a lot, it's just that the little things that he showed me, those yeah. intricate details, as we've made mention before, I thought to myself, that's something that I've never been shown how to do it that way, like mm-hmm. how to have that finesse. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the best way to describe it is that Bart is very good at adding finesse to things. Mm-hmm. And to backtrack on what you were talking about before, he made mention that you know a lot of master coaches, they aren't so rigid in their method of thinking. And there were times where even when Bart was talking, and I've certainly witness with other people, I've heard you emulate this before as well, is even if you see something that's not in line with the way that you're doing it, but it works, you have to consider it. Yeah. And that is so important in the growth aspect as well and your learning platforms because you're bearing witness to something that worked outside the spectrum of your understanding. Therefore, you owe it a debt to look into it further. Yeah, totally. Mm. That's one of the reasons I love going to, like, say, PSA Nationals and yeah, you've mentioned this before. The competition's great, mm. right? Yeah. But what I really like is open field the day before. Yep. That's why the, the two times I've been to PC Nationals, I'm there in my suit running around on the field, like decoying for people. Yeah. The real reason I'm doing that is quite selfish. People are like, hey, thanks for giving us the day. I'm like, no, no. I'm here because I've got a front row seat to watching the best competitors in the game and what they're doing. Right. Mm. And that to me is fucking fascinating. Right. Because well, there's it is. so many different things. Mm. And my favorite, my absolute favorite is when someone does something and I go like, oh, look at this dumb shit. And then it works. And I'm like, oh, hang on. That is, yeah, <laughs> that, that really shakes your, your own foundations, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. And then you go, all right, now I have to understand, first of all, why did I not think that was going to work? Okay. Like that's in, well, no. The first thing is, why did it work? Mm. Right. Because I thought it wasn't going to. Why did I think it wasn't going to work? But then get into like, how did that bias form in me? Right. Because I looked at that. I saw you doing it. I said, look at this dumb shit they're about to do. And then it doesn't, didn't, what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. I have to now go, okay, Mm. how did that come to be? And mostly it would be because of the balance of evidence. Like I've seen other people do that. Right. So I've seen other people do it and it not work. And I just saw you do it and it did work. So now I have to get into the weeds on what has been different, right? Yep. Like what have you done differently to other people I've, not, I've seen that not work for? And to me, that's fucking fascinating. That's mm. my favorite part about that kind of stuff. I've heard you talk about this before and I think this is a very important yeah, takeaway. Yeah, I spoke about with Jerry when yeah, I was on his it's, show. it's a very important takeaway message. Mate, I love it. And mm. that's one of the things like, again, people are like, oh, you know, thanks for 
thanks for helping us out. I'm like, no way, you helped me out. Like this was a, yeah, because these are people that really know what they're doing. Yeah. Like these are, you know, it's at nationals. They're, they're qualified to get there. They're going for a championship, mm-hmm. right? And and one of the things I love about sort of being at nationals is people will take risks that they wouldn't normally take because they're not trying to, they're not, they're not trying to get a title. They're trying to win, mm-hmm. right? And so, and you know, what's cool about say nationals, certainly in PSA is you could be, um, you could be disqualified and still win, yep. right? Because if everybody gets disqualified, then it's highest points. So people take risks that they would never normally take. And you get to see like, hmm, how's that pan out for you, right? Sometimes perfectly and sometimes not, right? So it's a, it's very interesting. And watching like people at that, that end and mm. understanding it. And with all different training backgrounds, different coaches, and you see people, that's one of the other things I love seeing is when they have open field, who, who's watching them, who's who's telling them what to do, who comes out on the field with them, yep. and, and what advice are they giving, what are they picking up that the handle is not. You know, there's so many layers to that shit, and I love Absolutely. I love getting to understand that stuff, but really diving into it. But, yeah, it's a, we could probably waffle about it for ages, but I think that the key kind of takeaway from what we're saying is having a, a coach is super important but the ability but, of critical thinking. Yeah, but mm. still being able to, like if they are a real master coach to you, they'll encourage you to look elsewhere and they'll be okay with it as well. Yep. Right? And want to talk to you about it. And yeah. hopefully want to add it to their collective knowledge as well. Yeah. You know, and that's the really impressive thing about very dynamic master coaches is that they will say, okay, well, now you know something I don't, so bring it back. Mm. And that's one thing that I, I must admit that I did appreciate that Boyd, taught us in the very early days he said if you've learned something outside bring it back to the group Mm -hmm. so you know there is a lot of appreciation for my early foundations of what i've learned the limitation wasn't in who taught me the limitation was within myself and that's something that as a takeaway i think a lot of people have to identify with is that the limitation resides within you Mm -hmm. you're the one who sets that boundary upon yourself and that took me far too long Mm -hmm. it took me far too long There is another little caveat insert that I want to put in here is because some people who I consider trainer hoppers will be listening to this. I was thinking that. I was thinking that. Yeah. And they'll be sitting there going, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. You know, I go around to see all these master coaches. But the problem with them is that they're so frequent with their accumulation of knowledge that they take just a smidge away. Yeah. And then they're already gone yeah, yeah. and then they're on to the next person. And yeah. then they take a smidge away from that person and then they're gone from that person as well. Yeah. This does not apply to you, you motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you know the difference? And I was wondering how I would work it in, but you've just given me the, <laughs> just me the end. Yeah. Is what is a dick move is trying to drive a wedge between. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that happens. And people who will say, hey. You nasty, crusty ass. Pains in the ass. But so people will say, like, you do this and somebody else does this, therefore one of you is wrong. Mm. And it's like, no, like, you won't turn me against that person. And, again, I'll use him as an example because he is a good friend and we have had this conversation with him. So let me talk about Jay again, right? Mm. So it's like it's a lot of play and relationship-based stuff. And I don't do anything – I I don't try and build a relationship with a dog. Mm. So a lot of people will try and – they build a relationship and then they use a relationship to train the dog. And he – you know, does a lot of that. I end up at the same point, but I use like the reinforces as a gateway to build the relationship. Yep. But also I train a lot of dogs that don't have a handler. 
right? Like they're not a special person, mm. right? And they need to come out of the kennel and work for whoever tells them to work. There is yep. no relationship building. And so it's a different technique for a different approach, mm. right? And so when people like that is my pet hate when people say like, oh, well, I've gone to him and he says this and you say X, so you, you're you – one of you is wrong. One of you is wrong. It's like, mm. no, we can both be right. Yeah. We, we can absolutely – we can say completely opposite things. Yeah. And both be 100% correct, mm. right? Because there's many paths to doing this shit. And yep. I have one and he has another. And that relationship-based one is a big one, right? I think that like that's a conversation I've had with a lot of people who say, how come you don't talk about relationship in training? I said, well, it's not that important to me. Mm. I end up with it, but I don't try to build it. We end up at the same place. I have a great relationship with the dogs that I have, but I use just pure reinforces to the dog. Now, relationship is a reinforcer. I get that, but I... Like, I'm like, what is the thing that you want? This tug? Okay, here it is. Is it food? Okay, here it is. Because that dog has to, a lot of the times, has to work for whoever is giving the commands. Yep. And again, to defend my position, then it's like when I'm training somebody else's dog, I don't try at all to develop a relationship with the dog because mm. it's not my dog. I want to teach the dog the behaviors and then give it back to them and let them use their relationship to get the dog to do the behaviors that I've taught, right? So, like, it's it all intertwines together. They yeah, it's need, very expensive. That's right. Mm. They need the good relationship. I don't need that. I just mm. need the dog to do the behaviors. And, in fact, like, I've had problems developing good relationships with people's dogs in the past because then when I laid a decoy for the dog, they take it personal, right? Rather than, like, say, you know, I've had people's dogs stay at, like, say, Jordan's dog, for example, right, has stayed at the house and I have a good relationship with the dog and the dog likes me. Yep. But then when I decoy for it, she's like, it's, it's similar to decoying for my own dog. Mm. Right. So that relationship has kicked, has bit me in the ass. I wish that I never had allowed that to develop. I yep. should have been more cold with that dog when I've spent time with it. So there's reasons for all this kind of shit and people that really understand it, understand it. Mm. But when people look at the surface of it and go, Oh, you're, you, you guys do different shit. They're really highlighting their limitations. Yeah, and Mm. try to turn – like that's when it's unacceptable is when Mm. you try and put a wedge between people. And I've been called out in public like to, you know – Defend your positions. Yeah, against Mm. friends of mine. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that because I don't have – first of all, I don't have an hour to explain the difference. Mm. And uh, like I don't want to be made to be the – the enemy of other dog trainer, right? Like when I agree with them, I think that what they do is fucking fantastic. I just do things differently. Many roads lead to Rome, right? Exactly. Again, you've highlighted an important point, and this is something where I've come unstuck before because I have been reactive to it. I've got angry and I've retaliated, and then I've owed the person an apology because it's not them that's caused the problem. It's these little stinkies that get in between. (laughs) Yeah, they get in between and they start causing little industry fracas between each other. But the stupid thing is they don't realize that we still talk to each other. Yeah. You know, even though we might have we might be fighting with each other, sometimes that will lead to a phone call which will end in a discussion and hopefully if you're not Develop too proud, relationship. It, it, it will come a good relationship. You know, yeah. once you've apologized for being an asshole and being arrogant, which I've I've had to hand on heart before apologize to people and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That's important sometimes in building relationships with people is to say, I said something or did something which was out of character and stupid and I was retaliatory and I shouldn't have been, I should have listened or taken it in or given you the benefit of a phone call in between. The good thing is, is that there have been people out there that have been sympathetic to that themselves and they've given me the time and or I've given other people the time to have a conversation and thought, yeah, there's a middleman in this who's trying to create the wedge. Mm. So, you know, I think the important thing for us 
as professionals in the industry as well is if we do realize that sort of thing is going on, perhaps before we get to the retaliatory stage, just have those phone calls, you know, ring that person up and say, hey, listen, some dirtbags just giving me a, a mouthful of something. I just want to clear it up with you. What do you think? And there's certainly people deserve it of that time. Yeah, definitely. There are some people by their past exploits that you'd be better off smashing your head against a brick wall rather than having that conversation. Yeah, but we all know like who they are. There's no point even getting involved. Well, I've had those conversations with people before and it's just ended up in a worse outcome than what it started (laughs) with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good place to wrap up. We've waffled long Mm. enough. Mm. All right. Got anything else to say? Nope. That's it. That was good. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm-hmm. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Got some cool stuff coming out. Very cool stuff. For you there. We're trickling out stuff, not just uh, the regular monthly drop. We've got some other stuff that's coming out. Mm. Glenn's continuing his detection series to showed me some of his cool props for teaching yeah. on that. <laughs> So I'm excited about that. Um, when you get older, you need trickery to encapsulate people. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so excited about a new, a new project, project that mm. we have that you Patreon guys are basically funding. Yep. Uh, not basically funding, are, are funding. funding. So we've got something so exciting coming out. I am yeah. so excited to do it. Yeah, it's really cool. It's but really it's still cool. a couple months away, so I need to shut up. It's uh, one of those things that have really... Like you came to me with it and, you know, like sowed the seed and it just exploded from there. All the possibilities of, of thinking, oh, this could be awesome. And it's- Could it, be a giant flop. It could be a giant flop awesome. or, or it could be absolutely fantastic. We're gonna you be the fun. judge. We're going to have fun doing it. You be the judge. Whether you like it or not, we're yep. going to have fun doing it. Yeah. It'll be up to you from there. So mm. anyway, that's where your Patreon dollars are going. You're about to see a big, big return on them. Thank you, Patreon people. You constantly get our appreciation, but you absolutely deserve it. Thank you so much. Another way you could support the show is to buy some merch from Teespring. Look cool while supporting the show. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump into the discussion group, group source some information in there. Facebook, we are the Canine Paradigm discussion group, or you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Glenn, have you fixed the music button? Oh, you haven't. All right. (laughs) That's the new tune. Okay. Okay.